We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Aikman is intercepted by Sam Mills. Steve Smith is going to go all the way. Panthers win in overtime. Newton steps up, goes for the end zone. Olsen, touchdown! Brian Burns to the house! And it is caught for the touchdown by Moore. And in the foot race, McCaffrey to the end zone. Keep pounding on three. One, two, three. Keep pounding. Welcome to another episode of The Roar, brought to you by Blue Air. I'm your host, Billy Marshall. Uh, and today I'm going to be joined by two guests who are going to pro- provide two different perspectives on Baker Mayfield. Uh, the first will be Stephen Ruiz from The Ringer. Uh, Stephen is a little less down on Mayfield and probably isn't thrilled about the Panthers acquiring him and doesn't think he's, you know, a very good quarterback. Uh, he does believe it's an upgrade, but how much of one? You know, it, it's a question to be asked, and he'll answer that for us. Uh, and then the second perspective is from Andre from EA Sports, and you can find him on Twitter at Moonlight Swami. Uh, Andre has been a huge Mayfield fan since day one, and he continues to be a big Mayfield fan. And we're going to hear his perspective as to why Mayfield is not a lost cause. So uh, thanks again for joining, and uh, hope you guys enjoy the podcast. Thank you. We're very happy now to be joined by Stephen Ruiz from The Ringer. Uh, unfortunately, he also was, or he still might be, a Carolina Panthers fan. Steven, what's up, man? Hey, how's it going? It's complicated. It's a complicated relationship with this team. I'm, I'm, a- I'm in that same boat with you, man. <laughs> I have, uh, I'm trying to stay out of the Twitter sphere with any Panthers takes because I'll just get really upset. I try to leave it all out here on this platform instead. <laughs> um, yeah. Fan is I'm- a strong word, though. Fan is a strong word. I'll say that. <laughs> for sure. For sure. No, I, I totally agree. Um, I mean, we've had you on the show before. Uh, really appreciate you joining us again. Uh, I mean, the first thing is, you know, obviously your reaction to the Mayfield trade was, you know, like most people, a little down on it. Um, we'll get into kind of the particulars as far as like their approach to, um, you know, searching for QBs and maybe like a journal outlook. But uh, just I, I don't think anyone could disagree that Mayfield is an upgrade. Right. But like. My biggest question and, you know, a question that I think you've written about is like how much of an upgrade really is he, especially, uh, you know, with, you know, an offensive coordinator now who really wasn't very high on him before the draft. Yeah, that that's my thing is, is it it's clearly an upgrade like Sam Darnold is one of the worst starting quarterbacks in the last five years. He's probably on the, the list of the bottom three. So clearly it's an upgrade. And when Baker's healthy and, and playing well in like offense puts him in good situations, he's an average quarterback. But this, the, the gap between those two, I think is smaller than people realize just because the environments they've been in. And it's not even just that Sam Darnold hasn't had talent around him because he did have talent around him last year in Carolina, I would argue it's, I, I feel like Baker has to be in this environment where you're not calling a lot of drop back passes. You're not putting him in, in obvious passing situations where he could just, you know, drop back, you cut the field in half, you roll him out and he doesn't really have to make a complex read. And the Carolina is just not in a position to play like that very often. So I don't think we're going to see those, those benefits. I don't, well, I don't think they're going to be as big as they would be if, if you put these two guys in a good offense, I think the difference between those two would be more stark, but if you put them on a bad offense, I think they'll look more alike 
if that makes sense. No, it, it does. And I think a lot of it is dependent on like the situation around him. Uh, let's first start with like the personnel. I do think that they've upgraded the offensive line. Yes. Um, and, you know, they've made some pretty shrewd signings with Bozeman, who I really didn't expect them to get him on the cheap. It kind of reminds me of the Reddick signing last year where like yeah. I thought he was going to like be in demand, but like he went for so cheap that it kind of, you know, it's a little interesting, but credit to them. I thought, I think he's a good signing and Corbett, uh, the same thing. I think he's a pretty solid NFL guard uh, and uh, Iquano, that's going to be a question mark. So for yeah. me, like, I think the offensive line went from like, you know, Albatross unit to like maybe average at best, which is still like, you know, it's still going to have issues throughout the year. It's yeah. not like the Cleveland offensive line where it's like one of the best in the league. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is like outside of DJ Moore, like I think there's a lot more questions about the skill group than a lot of people are letting on because McCaffrey's injury history is uh, kind of suspect the past two years. So uh, I don't know, like I, I do think the offensive line while upgraded, um, it, it will be better, but it's not going to be like anything he had in Cleveland. No, not, not close to it. And I, the scheme fit for me is another issue. Uh, Ben McAdoo, and maybe he's changed in the years that he hasn't been an offensive coordinator. He's like a quarterback's coach in Jacksonville, I think. But when we saw him on the Giants, this is not like a scheme that looks anything like what Baker Mayfield ran in Cleveland. And I think that's the type of offense you need to run to get the most out of Baker Mayfield. This, like, from what I remember, and maybe you have like a different memory of Ben McAdoo, but with the Giants, it was like 11 person. They lived in 11 personnel. They were in the gun. They were doing like quick game drop back maybe uh like five step drops from the gun also and i feel like looking at the offensive personnel like the skill players that type of offense is how you get the most out of these skill players like robbie anderson and dj moore and marshall and obviously uh christian mccaffrey it's like the skill players the offensive coordinator and the quarterback just don't make sense together for me and that's that's another thing for me is just like the scheme fit doesn't make sense uh, i don't i if if this is going to work like you need 2020 baker right like how baker was in the second half of 2020 mm-hmm. and you have to play a certain style of football to get that out of him and like you said the offensive line is fine but it's not dominant so i don't think they're going to get a lot of like single high looks based on how Ben McAdoo calls plays also like teams aren't going to be intimidated by the run game. I just don't know how you can cultivate that same environment that he had in Cleveland with this specific group of players and this specific play caller. The more I think about it, the more I hate the deal. Like when I first heard it, I was like, Oh, that's a pretty good deal. Like conditional fifth round pick they're paying. What is it? 4 million this year, 4.5 million, 5 million. Yeah. An average quarterback. Like, that's a good deal in the vacuum, but like the system fit just doesn't make sense. And then what it signifies for like the long-term team building uh, approach, like there's just bad vibes all around. And then you throw in just Baker Mayfield. I feel like he's a hard quarterback to root for. I don't know if you feel the same way, but for me, it's just like, he makes it very easy to root against him. Oh, for sure. For sure. Any way you look at the trade, it's like, it's really hard for me to get, to get pumped up about it other than, Oh, he's better than Sam Darnold, who is like the worst starting quarterback of the, of the last five years. Uh, okay. So the, the, I will defend McAdoo in this instance. And uh, again, what happened? I do like end, McAdoo though. Yeah. I no. And like to, when he became the head coach, I think things started to unravel and, and he just had too much power and he was doing all sorts of crazy things, even if they were justified, like benching Eli Manning for Geno Smith, like, <laughs> whatever like when he was in when he his first two years as a Giants OC and this is you know prior to 2014 the Giants offense with Gilbride and Coughlin it was just completely outdated right and so when he came in you know they drafted Odell obviously they kind of um the next year they drafted Eric Flowers and it, it, the offensive line still was like a pretty big issue and their run game yeah. was never good but in 2015 the Giants did have a top 10 offense by EPA per play uh and so a lot of that could be attributed because Odell was like you know um, you know, he was essentially like having the Justin Jefferson, Jamar Chase type of right. season that you would expect him. Um, but their offensive line, their starters were at the time, Eric Flowers at left tackle, Justin Pugh, left guard, Weston Richburg, Jeff Schwartz, and Marshall Newhouse. That's not a very good offensive line. No. So I, I think at the time, like maybe, you know, he comes from the, he comes from Mike McCarthy tree and, you know, the biggest joke about McCarthy is, you know, so much of those slant flat concepts <laughs> that he used to love running with Aaron Rodgers. So 
I think that can work with, you know, DJ Moore, where you just, you know, he's probably not the, like a burner who's going to get vertical quickly and you give him the ball in space. That's what he's good at. Um, But at the same time, I, I, I do wonder like, because, you know, the biggest issue, I guess, with Joe Brady was he wasn't running the ball enough. I mean, McAdoo isn't someone who's going to come in here and try to pound the ball like 30, 40 times either. Right. Right. And he's not going to, that's, that's another thing. Like it seemed the, the partnership between rule and McAdoo seems kind of weird to me, just uh, like philosophically, it's not even just that he doesn't run the ball. Like he's not calling a bunch of first down runs. It's just like the formations he prefers aren't the type of formations you get into when you, like when you, picture a run heavy team, a run first team. Like I'm picturing new England. I'm picturing San Francisco, like the teams with like a fullback on the field. From what I remember in, in New York, it was mostly like your basic shotgun three wide receiver formations, like a tight end attached to the, the line. I, I don't know how you, you craft a dominant run game from those formations, unless you have a, a quarterback who's a run threat on his own. So th- if Matt rules looking for like an offense where you're, we're going to run the ball down your throat, we're going to set up the play action pass or set up the deep shots. I, I don't think Ben McAdoo is the, uh, the offensive coordinator you want. I do think Ben McAdoo, like, I, I think I misspoke earlier. I do think Ben McAdoo is a, a good fit for Carolina skill players. I just don't think he's a good fit for Baker Mayfield because he does have some interesting pieces for the type of offense he likes to run. And I don't think he needs a dominant offensive line because there is some quick game. You're going to get the ball out of your hands quickly if Baker Mayfield can do that. I don't know if he can. But in theory, that's like the design of the offense. I remember when he took over in New York, like that was Eli was getting rid of the ball quickly. And that kind of made Eli better. His uh, completion percentage went up, obviously, because he's throwing shorter passes. And then he had Odell Beckham to to generate the explosives. <sighs> I, I really don't know how that offense works with a quarterback like this who, who just can't. That's one of the things is he's late on everything. So he has to, he has to overthrow passes. And then that's when the accuracy issues come in. Uh, the, like I said, the more I talk about it, I just, <laughs> it, I just become more depressed. <laughs> no, for sure. And, and this is sort of like, I thought Garoppolo would have been a better fit. And I, I do wonder like Same. if the injury issues, um, yeah, he's back throwing again, supposedly. But I, I do wonder if like some of the questions surrounding the injury issues and uh, what whatever the 49ers are demanding kind of just prevented yeah. them from going in that direction. Uh, because Garoppolo, he, he's really, you know, for all the issues, you know, people like myself and you have with him, he is really pretty adept at, you know, um, you know, timing, right. throwing the ball with timing. He gets the ball out of his hands quickly. He has a quick release. Uh, so I, I thought he would have been a better fit. For Mayfield, it's more like, you know, how is he really going to fit in? You know, some of Mayfield's strengths are, you know, more the five, seven step drops, you know, and then planting his foot and then driving it downfield. Right. Um, yeah, I, I agree with you. Cause I, I can already picture in my head Mayfield, like he does that thing where he just pump fakes a ball after a three step drop and then just holds onto it. Yeah. And, and that's just not going to work again. I don't know what type, I know McAdoo, you work for, uh, he's worked, you know, obviously he was with McCarthy last year in Dallas, but previous to that, he was with Jay Gruden in Jacksonville and, you know, wherever else he's been since, you know, he was in New York, maybe he's evolved, but usually a guy like him who's kind of been through the ringer in the NFL, you know, he doesn't really change his ways, which is fine. He, he's a, I mean, he's a pretty average offensive play caller. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I mean, the next thing about this entire process is some people I've heard defending this, um, defending their approach to finding QBs, like take as many, throw as many darts as you can. I, I don't know. I kind of, I don't agree with that at all personally, because like my biggest fear is that they did draft like a Justin Fields or Mac Jones last year. And then, you know, let's just say they hate Fields by all intents and purposes while, you know, some of the film looks fine if he had that type of year, I'm just like, I get worried that they'd probably give up on fields after a year and then go in a different right. direction. So I'm like a little, like kind of just confused as to why they just continue to go about this approach. What are your thoughts on it? Yeah. And, and like, I, I go back to the Teddy Bridgewater contract and they signed Teddy Bridgewater. He comes in. He, he, I mean, Teddy Bridgewater isn't like my most favorite quarterback, the way he plays, 
but he came in and he was Teddy Bridgewater. Like that's what you expect when you sign Teddy Bridgewater. And then they move on for him, which on from him the, the very next offseason. And my thing is just like, what did you think Teddy Bridgewater was when you signed him? Like you've seen him on film before. This is Teddy Bridgewater. And after that, like, I, th- I don't know how I kind of viewed that signing. I thought it was like naive. I would, I would say the Sam Darnold thing was desperation at that point. Like if you watch Sam Darnold on film with the jets, I know like Adam, Adam Gase being terrible, gave him some excuses, but you watch the film and it was like, this guy is terrible. Like he has no chance of being like good. It doesn't matter what the offense is. He's missing layups. He can't read. He can't create explosive plays within the, the structure of an offense. I don't know how that's going to work. And then obviously it, what happened last year proved me right. or proved everyone that was against that trade. Right. And then now the Baker Mayfield just seems like more of the same. It's like another desperation move. And what does it say about Matt Corral also? Because right. the reports are, oh, there's going to, I don't think there's going to be like a real competition. Baker Mayfield's going to win it. But the reports are, oh, they're going to have Darnold and Baker uh, compete in camp. Obviously, PJ Walker's still there. I think he's probably not going to be on the roster by then. But where are the reps coming for this developmental pro- prospect you took? Because that's what you took him as, right? A developmental prospect. Where is he getting these reps? You need reps to get better. And if we're wasting reps on the saddest quarterback competition in the league, like where is Corral? How is he going to get better? Where is the preseason reps coming from? Is he going to be playing like back of the roster guys in the fourth quarter in August? Is that going to be helpful for him? Is it going to be helpful for him being on the practice squad? I don't know. Like if, if you are really serious about Matt Corral, like developing into something and you think there's something there, I, you've got to get rid of one of these two quarterbacks, like Darnold should not be on the roster and they flocked themselves into him by picking up his fifth year option right away when they traded for him. For sure. And again, that just goes back to what I was saying earlier. It's like, if you really wanted Mayfield, why not just, you know, trade for him you know during the draft that way you have him and you waste the future third round pick on trading up for corral and so just everything about like their approach to the position has just um it's just again it's been reeks of desperation and it's just very confusing Uh, again mayfield's on a one-year deal so uh, i mean darnold too for that matter so even like long term i mean i'm not sure how you know, it's going to go with Mayfield and, you know, for all intents and purposes, he's going to be the starter. I don't care what they say about, you know, right. Lincoln <laughs> as a competent competition, which is whatever. Uh, I think that the safe some face if in case Mayfield gets hurt or something, but if, if Darnold wins the competition, the whole front office should be fired. Yeah. Like the whole and, coaching staff, like everyone involved in the Baker Mayfield trade, it should be fired. If Sam Darnold beats him out, like there's no way that he's not starting week one. For sure. No, I, I agree with that. I mean, I think maybe Darnold, I don't know, like they're not going to cut him. Maybe, you know, some team gets an injury and they can flip him for like a conditional, like seventh round or I don't know. If Clemson's quarterback goes down. I don't even yeah. know if that's an upgrade. I don't who like who's trading for Darnold. Uh, that, I think it wasn't a, I don't know how to say this, but uh, like I realized that his contract is fully guaranteed for this year and his salary is what is it like 18 million and, and cutting him would leave that all that dead money behind my make the grown up decision and just get him out of the building. In my opinion, just eat the dead cap hit. We've seen smarter teams do that all over the league. Like the Eagles were, didn't care about getting rid of uh, Carson Wentz's contract. The Jaguars aren't a smart team, but they didn't care about uh, getting rid of Blake Bortles contract when it became too much. I think when you're a team like the Panthers and you're not necessarily built to win this year, like why not just take it on the chin and just get rid of Sam Darnold? Cause I do think it, it would help Corral's development at the very least. And this team obviously needs a quarterback. And the only one that has a chance of being anything like a long-term solution is probably Corral. I, I don't like him as a quarterback. Like I didn't like him as a prospect, but he's young and he, hasn't proven to be bad in the NFL yet. And we can't say that about the other three quarterbacks uh, in the quarterback room. Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, if, even if you cut him, you don't really like, I think you gain like maybe like 200 something thousand dollars in cap space. So it's not going to mm-hmm. negatively impact your, I mean, obviously the dead money 
you know, impacts. I'm not going to get into the particulars of the cap, but yeah, I would, I would certainly like just move on from him. And, and if you're really worried about, um, you know, the development of Corral, then just keep a guy like PJ Walker, you know, as you know, the, you know, game day backup or something, and just yeah. make sure Corral gets all the reps, you know, during, during the week, because like you said, the development of him, it's just, it's going to be intruded if you keep, you know, Darnold and you're giving him third string reps because, you know, uh, especially in, this day and age, you know, practice reps are, yeah, um, you know, you, they're, you don't get them as much as you did in the past. So anyway, <laughs> that's, that's, you know, from that perspective, uh, let's try to get you know, your perspective on how and this team has a pretty interesting schedule. Like, you know, they're, they're probably going to face uh, the Browns and the Cardinals, uh, the Browns without, Watson presumably like I've been reading reports that he couldn't get suspended but I'm like a whatever um and then they're definitely going to play the Cardinals without Hopkins and they've actually done pretty well against Cliff Kingsbury right uh, it's like so the team that, he can't beat yeah like, and them in the Lions exactly and, and I don't know like I don't even think the Cardinals have gotten better so like their schedule like initially kind of sets up pretty well for them yes. uh, let's just say Mayfield looks like maybe not like the 2020 version, but like, you know, better than he did last year. And uh, it kind of like in between, you know, the 20, 2020 and 2021 version where mm-hmm. he's kind of like a, you know, the 17, 18 range QB in the NFL, like, you know, similar to like the Tannehill type or maybe even a little worse or better, yeah. depending on what you think of him. Let's say that happens. How do you just see this entire team, the season going? Uh, looking at the schedule, it, yeah, you're right. I think there's like a chance for some optimism. I think there's a good chance they start 2-0 and because Cleveland is not going to be with their quarterback, and then they play the Giants after that. I think it could go like last year, honestly, like where you get off to the hot start, you, you get some optimism. Maybe you get a little naive and trade for uh, Stefan Gilmore, and then the schedule gets harder. And that's that's my issue with the team is like this is a tough schedule even for it. Were they did they have the last place schedule? Uh yes, they do. They yeah, they came in last place last year. Yeah, even like even for like a last place schedule, it's pretty tough. Like you get the Rams, you're playing the the NFC West. Obviously, you get the Rams. Uh, you get the 49ers, two games against the Saints, two games against the Bucks. There's a lot of like losses you could already pencil in. They, They go to Baltimore. They play the the uh, Broncos. I I'm saying like seven and ten at best. Like if everything goes right and you get Baker Mayfield, you get that average Baker Mayfield seven and ten. I feel like is the ceiling. The defense has some good pieces, and I just I I I don't know about the coaching staff, the defensive coaching staff. Like I like I like their like general philosophy and how they approach things, but for me, I think they had. I think they get out coached easily by better offensive staffs. So I, I'm not seeing like the defense being good enough to carry a average offense to like a playoff playoff contention, even if the NFC South is weak. So I, I think I'm capping them at like seven wins. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that sounds pretty fair. Uh, I think their win total are now six and a half. And I, I agree with you. Uh, we can close out here just with your quick thoughts on the defense. Um, you know, last year, obviously they started really hot today you know, got the benefit of playing, uh, you know, three bad teams, uh, two yeah. rookie quarterbacks uh, and a Saints team that was like depleted of their coaching staff. Um, you know, to their credit, they did make some, you know, changes in the coaching staff defensively. Yeah. Um, they brought back Steve Wilkes. Uh, who's going to be the secondary coach. Um, uh, but yeah, no, I think the biggest issue with them defensively, especially towards the end of last year is like, I, I know a lot of people make fun of it, but like they were really bad setting the edge against the run. And mm-hmm. Just, they only had like one reliable linebacker who could actually like, you know, you know, kind of get through like run fits and really make stops. And that was Thompson. And then uh, because of, you know, how they were playing a lot of the light boxes and tight fronts right. that they implemented uh, is, you know, Reddick and Burns, like, you know, for how good they are, they just aren't the type of edge rushers who are going to, you know, present any type of fear against you when you run the ball against yeah. them. And, um, you know, Derek Brown didn't really, I mean, he, fine but overall like I, I do think that stopping the run matters and i think you know the, that washington game 
uh, even Buffalo, they played pretty well against Josh Allen. Like, but yeah. it was just the fact that Allen and Singletary were just running all over them. Yeah, I, and I agree with you. Like, I don't think that's necessarily going to change. Uh, I am interested to see like what the return of JC Horn does for the defense. I, I do think that they drafted him with the idea that they were going to play more man coverage. And I think that's why they might've panicked when he got hurt and traded for Stefan Gilmore, brought in another man coverage guy. I do think he kind of changes what they can do on the back end, And I wonder how that like kind of trickles down to the front end, because like, you know, this, like most football fans know this, like what do you do on the back end dictates what you can do with your front and, and vice versa. So maybe if they do have, a better cornerback group that they're like really able to rely on. Like, I think they need JC Horn to be a star, not just like a good player. Like I think they need him to have like an AJ Terrell type second year for this defense to have a chance to be above average. I agree. I agree. Yeah. No, even last year, like they were just kind of barely, barely scratched above average, um, you know, despite, you know, the defense kind of carrying them for like the first half of the year, they really fell off in the second half. I don't yes, think people, yeah remember that but I agree like and, and that's the biggest thing with Horn it, it's just you know the injury he suffered was obviously you know I mean it sucks but it was a it's a pretty tough injury to come back from um you know but he was an athletic freak you know he tested like one so yeah it, it's it's gonna come down to him and it kind of sucks that you're putting a second year player in that position but there's really like kind of no room for error on that side of the ball anymore yeah, yeah. And I I think like the problem last year, it was kind of inevitable that they were going to fall off in the second half because they were they were getting by like with smoke and mirrors those first three weeks, right? They were just like fooling the quarterback. They were getting free rushers, they were messing with protections for the offensive line. But you put all that on film, NFL coaches are smart and they're going to adjust and they're going to adapt and they're going to realize what you're doing. And once they played a good quarterback, they played Dak Prescott. I mean, I think they were three and zero at the time, right? When they played uh, the Cowboys, that was their first loss. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I predicted before that game, I was like, they're going to get blown out because they can't do this against Dak Prescott. He's too smart before the snap. He sees everything. He's like so good at pr- protections that they're going to blow them out. And that's exactly what happened. And I think when you play good quarterbacks and you have to play that style of defense, it's, it doesn't work. Like it works in college. Like you could do that in college. You could be Georgia and, and you could run those simulated pressures and you're going to fool college quarterbacks. But in, in the NFL, I don't think you can really get by if that's like your thing. And for those that like first month, that was their thing. And teams have eventually adjusted. You need to just have talent. You need to be able to play like regular pass coverage in the NFL because the team, the offenses are so good. That's why I think like you need this like a lockdown season from J.C. Horn because he would allow you to play like a more traditional type of pass defense. Oh, yeah, for sure. And and like, again, with the free agent acquisitions, I like that they picked up Xavier Woods. He's a pretty like solid NFL safety kind of pairs well with Chin. Um, So that gives him more opportunity to stay like in the box. and Maybe he can. Uh, uses versatility in more creative ways. But, yeah, I, I agree. I think the defense is um, the, a lot of people rightly are pointing out some of the questions with the offense uh, for this team. But the defense also, like, um, they have some pretty big questions to answer moving forward. But, uh, Stephen, I just want to thank you for joining us. Uh, do you want to plug anything before you kind of sign off? Are you, like, what are you working on, like, as we head towards training camp? And are you going to be, you know, visiting the Panthers during training camp? Or are you kind of just staying local? Uh, I'm, I'm not saying local. I'm not going to go to the Panthers though. I'm hoping to get out to the chargers camp. Uh, I'll probably go to, I'm definitely going to Baltimore. I might go to Washington. I don't know if I want to go to Ashford. That's, that's, that's gonna, <laughs> the deciding factor is if I want to drive down to Ashford, but, uh, yeah, I'm going to make some stops, but probably, probably not in Carolina. I don't know if I'd be welcome there to be honest with you. Oh man, I'm sure. I mean, I'm sure they can take any publicity. I mean, even even John is getting you know camera access down there. So, and, <laughs> so yeah. But anyway, thanks again for joining. I really appreciate it. everyone. You can check out his work on the Ringer at Stephen yeah. Ruiz. Appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me. And we are now joined by Andre, uh, former EA Sports uh, ratings adjuster. Uh, you can also find his stuff on ESPN, um, and he's on Twitter at Moonlight Swami. Andre, what's going on? Not much, man. Thank you so much for having me. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Uh, you know, Carolina definitely got 
they're getting their feet wet in the quarterback market uh, as late as July. Um, but I wanted to bring you on because your perspective on Mayfield is uh, obviously different than our previous guests, and you are mm-hmm. much higher on him. Uh, you've been high on Mayfield going back to when he was a prospect coming out too. Uh, so I just want to hear your perspective on what you thought about Mayfield, uh, you know, before the draft and kind of like how his career has gone to date. Sure. Absolutely. So pre-draft, I, I really went deep in that quarterback class. That was one of the, I think it was my fourth quarterback class. And I, I redid my, my system on how I wanted to study guys. So I ended up breaking down every game of Baker's from 2017 and 2016. And I gave him different grades based on each year. So 2016 film, I liked it. You know, I was like, okay, this is someone who has some really good physical qualities. The process and the mental needs a little bit of work. 2017, he took a huge jump. I'm like, okay, you combine the fact that mentally he's well above the other guys in the class outside of Lamar. And physically, in terms of arm talent, he is right up there with any of them. You know, Josh Allen has more velocity, but he didn't have as much control coming out. And I'm like, okay, he has the competitive toughness, all of these factors. He is the type of guy who can survive in Cleveland. And I don't think anyone else can. So that was the, one of the reasons that I was so high on him, that he had that, those intangible qualities to him that you basically saw just exuding on the field. All of his teammates at Oklahoma loved him to death. And there was just a lot to like. So 2018, he comes in week three against the Jets in prime time. And, you know, he, he really sparks that team. And I mean, that team was in total disarray, right? Just looking at the coaching situation, Hugh Jackson, the power war between him an offensive coordinator and just all the different uh, issues that they had to go through. And he's just kind of out there balling, playing a little bit loose, a little bit fast, uh, making mistakes, but making so many high level throws that you're really, you're buying it. And then 2019 hits. And Freddie Kitchens, whom he advocated for. So, you know, you can't put the full blame on on anybody else, right? You know, he he was involved with that. Uh, They didn't know how to do anything off script. So the first 15 plays of every game were really solid. And then after that, they were dead in the water. Just you could tell there was no flow. There was no nothing. And that team was a disaster. So 2020, Kevin Stefanski comes in and they kind of shift philosophy in, in a way. And first half of the season there's some acclimation going on but he's still playing well second half lights out uh if you look at the way that he graded from pro football focus he was whether it be on play action off of play action shotgun fourth quarter any of it he was a top 10 quarterback across the board and then 2021 week one Kansas city game ends in a little bit undramatic fashion he tries throwing it away as he gets hit it's an interception he gets injured week two severely injured, gets banged up all throughout the season, and it's a disaster of a year. So we've seen 2018, which is was spectacular rookie quarterback play, among the best rookie quarterback play I think we've seen, period, right? You know, you can say that Herberts was, was right up there, if not better. You could say Russell Wilson as a rookie, Andrew Luck. But it was one of the premier seasons of the past decade for a rookie quarterback. 2019, disaster. 2020, excellent, excellent play. 2021, playing hurt did not play at a high level but I went through I've I've gone through a lot of quarterbacks and I think it would be unfair to say that he was not at a starting caliber in any of those years I think that's the line that a lot of people draw was he a good quarterback in 2021 no and there's plenty of reasons why but I would say he was probably in that 19 to 23 range of NFL starting quarterbacks last year. And that's still pretty viable considering that he really took a major step back in accuracy, which has been his calling card, especially vertically Um, for his career before last season, he's been about the fifth to seventh best quarterback vertically in the NFL in terms of ball placement, in terms of uncatchable rate, et cetera. And that is non-negotiable. He has one of the best arms in the league, probably top five, six uh, up there with Stafford, with Rodgers. He generates the most velocity out of any quarterback on a consistent basis in the NFL per next-gen stats. Um, And he can throw with touch, but he didn't a lot in 2021. 
probably because of his shoulder. Yeah, for sure. And, and I, I want to go back to his rookie year because I'm glad you brought it up. Uh, it, it certainly wasn't a, a great situation. Now, I think the last two years, um, you know, a lot of people point out, you know, the strong offensive line and some of the supporting cast with the scheme as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but 2018, the offensive line consisted of Greg Robinson at left tackle, who's no longer in the league. Uh, Joel yep. Batonio, who continues to be, you know, an outstanding left guard. J.C. Treader, yep. um, I think they signed him in free agency. He was a, you know, certainly an upgrade and a good center. And uh, Kevin Zeitler, uh, I would say, again, a good right guard, but probably uh, wasn't spectacular in Cleveland uh, when he went there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the right tackle was uh, Chris Hubbard, I believe. And, yeah. and so the offensive line that year wasn't necessarily the offensive line that we're seeing now, where it's like, you know, certainly a top five unit. And they're coached by arguably the best offensive line coach in the league. Um, and the only like real like difference maker he had um, and the, at the skill position was maybe uh, Nick Chubb. And he was a rookie and, and Landry, obviously he had a pretty good season, but you know, besides that Callaway was a rookie Higgins was, you know, a second year player. He's on draft or he's a late round pick. So he not, he wasn't necessarily working with you know the amount of talent that you would expect. I should mention Najoku um, was another player that they drafted in the first round too. But again, the, the same thing with him. He wasn't necessarily uh, the David Najoku we know of now. Yeah, absolutely. And I will say, twenty twenty one, he the interior was really strong, but the tackles were kind of a revolving door with injury. Jedrick Wills played through a lot of injury and he missed four games. Um, Blake Hans played 14 games and played 650 snaps for them. I mean, that that's not an ideal situation. James Hudson played, you know, six games, played 300 snaps. Um, Michael Dunn played 128 and he moved all over the place. Uh, Wyatt Teller played a lot, but in terms of pass protection, he can be a little bit wild. And he also had 11 penalties. So Treader and Petonia were really stable, but everything around him wasn't really in 2021 on top of the injury. And you could feel every, every game that he was really skittish, but you're, you're absolutely right on 2018. That was not a, a, a great unit. There was really nothing about that team that stood out as this is a really talented squad. Um, and he elevated them. And that's that, you know, that's a huge step. I, I did like Zeitler for them. Uh, but he was not, you know, a premier player by any means. Um, you also forgot Desmond Harrison. Oh yeah. He was like a really like skinny offensive. I mean, he was really athletic, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. He played 600 snaps and he gave up 32 pressures in that time period. It was not, it was not good. Um, uh, yeah. Between him and, uh, Greg Robinson, they gave up 52 pressures at left tackle on the season. (laughs) So, you know, it's uh, it was a little bit more chaotic, but, you know, I, I've really been studying the offense that Baker's run over his career with Stefanski and how that, you know, applies and where he was good and where he wasn't. I think the thing that Baker doesn't get enough credit for is he is really, really good in the quick game in a lot of different ways. Uh, he generates so much velocity on his passes that he can throw outside the numbers on those uh, on those blaze outs, on those speed outs, on hitches, on curls, on comebacks. He can do so many different things from a three, five step drop perspective, uh, both from the gun and from under center. He's not afraid to throw over the middle of the field. His vision can get impaired at times because uh, obviously he's just a little bit over six foot, but he still is able to layer that ball in pretty significantly he didn't do it as well in 2021 for you know the reasons we stated before Uh, on top of the fact that he also had knee injuries which didn't get doesn't get remembered as much he he was once like walking wounded with like four different injuries uh last year but you know he can he can do all of those throws and he can put the slants right on the money Uh, he can hit the digs on the backside on the five-step drops and he loves throwing those uh those outside fades to his receivers and he'll, he'll throw a post and he'll throw it 60 yards if he needs to. Uh, but I think the big thing for him that he struggled with this year, and I don't know if it's a, if it's as much a Baker thing or is it, or it's a combination of factors, but when they played an empty, there was a lack of comfort. He obviously did some really good things from it, but 
I don't know how comfortable Kevin Stefanski is running empty to begin with. Uh, I went back and watched uh, some Kirk Cousins film from 2018, 2019, when Stefanski was offensive coordinator. And the Vikings had a huge uptick in empty after Stefanski left. They were about 50 plays, 35 and 50 plays in each of those two seasons. And they were running it 100, 120 times with Baker uh, under Stefanski. And some of the, the plays just, you could tell Baker wasn't comfortable with them, but they kept trying to run it back. And I don't know what that is from a, from a coach's perspective of why you would run the same play. I mean, he literally had a play, it's you know, a couple hitches and then it's crossers with a little option route by the tight end. And basically the idea is that the tight end pulls up the middle linebacker and one of one or both of the crossers leak in behind it and they're open. And I've watched that play five or six times and those crossers got open and Baker never saw it once. And I'm like, at what point do you stop calling this play? It's right. clear that he doesn't, he do, either isn't comfortable with it or he's not seeing it. Either he's not picking up on the coaching, he's not comfortable with the reads that he's seeing, whatever it may be, however they coach it. Why are you forcing him into this specific situation? And you see it that like that New England game was coaching and quarterback malpractice. The route combinations, all the different things that they tried to do against that New England defense was so counterproductive. I mean, New England is one of the best teams at countering empty in terms of they can disguise so many different things and really blur your, your reads at the line of scrimmage. I mean, they would come out and empty and New England would put seven on the line every play. And it's like, why are you subjecting him to this when you're going to run with five-man protections and seven guys that he has to read and they're all dropping and blurring and sometimes New England dropped eight out of those seven-man you know, lines, you know, it's, it's New England, right? They just do all that crazy stuff. And it just, it felt so awkward to watch and, and Baker struggled and he really did not look good, but it wasn't like he was set up to be incredibly successful either. And I think there was some stubbornness involved back and forth, especially as the season went on between those two. Uh, he did look hesitant on some plays, especially from empty, but if it was things like stick from empty, he nailed that every time. I mean, stick isn't exactly the most difficult read in the world anyway. You're reading leverage. But if you gave him a side to read, if you gave him full field progression where it's just find somebody open, he was doing a lot of really good stuff. And there, there were games where he just looked really uncomfortable. And then you see the Cincinnati and the, the Chargers games. And he's throwing with touch. He's throwing with rhythm. He's feeling it. They're attacking space. They're doing all sorts of things. And then that guy just kind of disappeared in other weeks. So it was a lot of inconsistency in a lot of different ways. And I found it really interesting. One of the things, if you remember from 2018, 2019, Baker was at his best in the scramble drill, right? He could do some really special things outside of structure, throwing the football. And the receivers were really good at creating space when Baker broke the pocket. And outside of Odell, who, you know, as a walking scramble drill, no one on those Browns teams the past two years really inspired confidence when the pocket broke. It was a lot of loafing. It was a lot of jogging. It was a lot of, you know, I'm going to sit down here and kind of side shuffle. There was no real running to grass. And I don't know what that is, but it definitely hampered him. And you can see it in his numbers. His big time throws under pressure decreased pretty substantially under Kevin Stefanski after averaging, you know, about 10, 12 per year. It was three in 2020. I mean, that, that's a massive drop down. And he, he looked hesitant to throw under duress last year, um, especially outside the pocket. He was more willing to take off and scramble which was, you know, when he was moved off his spot, he only threw 47 passes out of 96 dropbacks. So there was something wrong there. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so let's kind of transition that into the situation he's walking into now. Yep. You know, I, I want to leave the personnel out of it for a second, but Ben McAdoo, uh, big mm -hmm. 11 personnel. Uh, you mentioned a quick game stuff. 
you know, that is what when Eli, um, or excuse me, when he first went to the Giants in 14 and 15, uh, in 2015, they actually had a top 10 offense by EPA per play. Uh, so, you know, McAdoo did improve Eli. I think it's just when he became the head coach, he became power hungry and did all sorts of reckless things, yeah. uh, which it, it's it's not the end of the world. I mean, we've seen a lot of really good coordinators fail at the head coaching part. And and so when you're walking into a situation with McAdoo, who, again, is going to rely on that, you know, those slant flat concepts that are very popular with the McCarthy tree. Yeah. How do you think his adjustment will be? I think he'll be seamless, honestly. Um, I think Baker working the three-step drop game is probably at his best because he really reads leverage well pre-snap. And, you know, the rotation stuff, that'll get him, especially as you start pushing the ball down the field. But, you know, when he's working in that quick game, he was really good. And if you look at his PFF grade under in 11 personnel in 2020, he was the eighth-best quarterback in the league. I mean, he was – and that was with really – let me think about the guys that he had in those in that 11 personnel, right? It was a rookie, Donovan Peoples-Jones. It was Jarvis, and Odell missed most of the season. And then it was Rashard Higgins and, you know, whomever that he was throwing to. It, it really didn't matter. I think that's really the big thing for him, that he, he thrives in those situations. He doesn't need the condensed, heavy personnel to be successful, and he doesn't need play action to be successful. Um you know, if, if you look at his numbers and play action versus non, they're just as good. And, you know, his uh, his big time throw percentage and all different things, they're they're all really good when he's not playing in play action, which, you know, I, th- I think that's a, a positive thing moving forward. But you, know, you give him some of those those clear passing concepts where, I mean, if you're reading off defenders leverage, he can make those throws. You see it the first play of the game against the chargers it was literally they motioned to joku in uh from left to right from a trip set into a two by two and they're reading the flat defender and he takes one step on the slant and he throws the flat to Najoku, and it's a 25 yard game you yeah. know like it it's it's so it's pitch and catch and he has the velocity that he can fit the passes into tight windows that a lot of guys can't that eli couldn't um in that mcadoo system but aaron Rodgers could and that was one of those things that Rodgers really thrived on. Uh, you see the back shoulder fades concepts that, you know, Rodgers really succeeded on. And Baker, when he throws them, he doesn't throw them often. But when he throws them, they're on the money. You know, it's, it's the same concept that if you have your alerts and you're making your throws on, off of those defenders leverages pre-snap, he's going to be good. It's really the double clutching in some of those situations where, Either the read gets muddied or someone doesn't take the right release or their timing is messed up and he rushes his drop back a little bit, but you can see the wheels turning through his head and you see plenty of full field reads, the quick game, all of that stuff. And that's really when he's at his best. For sure. And, and I think DJ Moore is like, that's kind of his game too, where he's not necessarily the kind of receiver who's going to quickly like use, you know, he, he's not like Keenan Allen type where he's going to use his footwork to create yeah. separation. He's much better, um, you know, when he's, when he has a ball in his hands, when he's releasing and uh, you throw those quick intermediate and short routes and uh, let him do his work after the catch. He's very strong and powerful and uh, kind of like a, I don't want to compare him to, I just think he's a better version of maybe Jarvis Landry in some respects. Yeah. Um, but again, let, let's take a look at this personnel now, because again, outside of uh, DJ Moore, I mean, I do think there's a little more questions surrounding the skill players and I want to start there because again, we know what DJ Moore is, um, you know, maybe not a top 10 wide receiver, but definitely in that 10 to 20 range. And um, mm-hmm. I, I think his skill set will work well with Mayfield. Um, you know, the biggest question is going to be, you know, wide receiver two and three, uh, and even f- I guess four, because you I mean, Robbie Anderson, you know, for as much success as he's had in this league, he did not play well at all last year. And mm-hmm. a Terrace Marshall is a little question mark. Uh, the same thing at tight end, uh, you know, they gave a, contract to ian thomas who's really hasn't uh produced um to justify that contract so they're kind of hoping uh it works out for him and then you know at running back mccaffrey as you know as much as i rate him highly and many others do uh yep. he's just he hasn't been healthy the past couple of years so right you know what what are your thoughts on you know just how mayfield can you know work with this collection of skilled talent yeah so I'll start by saying I think Robbie would have been the best receiver in 2021 on that 2018 Browns team. 
right before they yeah I would agree they made that. the adult trade. So I'd be I'd be remiss to say that he will not be able to make a connection work there. And I think Robbie's still an upgrade over Donovan Peoples Jones in a similar role where he's that vertical field stretcher who can really make plays at the second and third level that that really unlock keys to that offense. Um, I think having Rashard Higgins, honestly, as a safety net as your fourth receiver is a really valuable asset because they have so much chemistry already. I would argue that Rashard Higgins had the most chemistry with Baker Mayfield out of any player that he worked with in his four years in Cleveland. Um, you know, oh, that's Higgins, interesting to know. Like if you want to talk about knowing where he's going to be on time, throwing with anticipation over the middle on the outside scramble drill, all sorts of things. Higgins was the guy who he could rely on in a way that other guys couldn't at really any point. And, you know, his numbers weren't gaudy, but you could feel it that when they needed a play, Higgins was one of the guys that they looked to both schematically and from a, just from a comfort perspective for Baker, trusting his hands, trusting his process, um, you know, making sure that everything was timed up, right. He just plays it. He plays smooth, right. He's not a, he's not a premier separator. He's not a burner. He's nothing necessarily significantly special about his game, but he just plays the position the right way. And he's reliable in that sense. So DJ Moore, you have that guy who, yeah, as you said, he's that, he's that yak specialist. You get him the ball, you, you let him work and he can get open, whether that's playing him in the slot in a three by one, whether it's in the slot in a two by two, or just on the outside as a Z, even as an X, like he can really do a lot of different things for that, for that unit in the quick game. And, and Baker will put it on him and he'll put it on him fast and he can work, you know, he can sell the upfield shoulder because he is fast, right? You know, that's, it's an underrated part of his game, but he is a fast, fast player uh, on top of the polish that he, that he already exudes as a receiver. So if you want to put him on those comebacks and those anticipation throws, I'm sure Baker can put it on him right at the break. And that's not an issue because throwing both left and right outside the numbers, it's, it's fantastic in terms of the tight end game. I mean, you, you already said it on Ian Thomas. He's not necessarily a premier player, but between him and Tommy Tremble, I think you can see some, some upside there. Tremble's athletic. He can do some things after the catch as well. I really liked him coming out of college. So I'm interested to see how he continues to grow and he's really young right he's still 22 years old yeah yeah uh, second year yep. yeah so i mean he's he's a baby and i mean even last year watching the joku the things that he did before the catch you know in his routes they were not dependable he muddied some reads with some really bad decision making on options on uh on different things so it's not like baker had the premier route running tight end that he's now leaving you know there's I would argue that this group is much is more talented with much higher upside than what the Browns had absolutely after the Odell trade, but before the Odell trade as well, just based on the way that things were kind of building and, and going from there. Um, so I think he'll be, I think he'll be fine. I, I would say that if you look at the two seasons where he had even a modicum of, of stability and confidence and health, he was between QB 10 and QB 16. Yeah, that, that sounds right. And, and I think that's going to be um, you know, certainly to his strengths where he's not necessarily like just locking on to one guy. And he's never actually had that issue in my experience. So I don't mm-hmm. necessarily think it's going to be a problem. Yeah. I mean, I mean, he really is a like you, you could see the way that his process was going. It was a lot of pre-snap identification. And then it was just progression based reads. Boom, boom, boom. You could see his feet kind of moving. It's when things broke down that, especially 2021, that he just didn't have that comfort. Um, If they let him play a little bit fast and loose, I think you're going to get the best version of Baker that we've seen since 2018 in that he'll be able to make those plays outside of structure. And he might throw some passes that are a little bit dangerous, but Mm -hmm. he's going to really unlock that vertical element that, you know, it's not a Stefanski thing. If you've, if you've watched him just in general, right. The way that Kevin Stefanski and a lot of these offenses that are this heavy uh, boot action, wide zone, outside zone, they like to scheme up their explosives and they don't like forcing the issue. And Baker's a little bit more gunslinger than that. 
And I think that was a little bit of a restriction that was placed on him in the way that he played, because you could see when things broke down, he wasn't taking the third level read. He was taking the second level read or the first level read, or he was scrambling. And I think if you have an offense that lets him kind of get back to that gunslinger mentality, I think you raise the ceiling of this offense in a way that really hasn't been done since healthy Cam Newton. For sure. And I, I do think it's funny because, you know, Matt Rule, one of his supposed issues with Joe Brady was he wasn't running the ball enough, but McAdoo in New York, um, I mean, he really wasn't a guy who ran the ball. I mean, I think his starting running backs were like Shane Vereen and Rashad Jennings. So it's not like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and I mean, to his credit, I mean, again, he comes from like that McCarthy tree and, you know, the McCarthy um, offenses, at least in Green Bay, they weren't necessarily a run heavy versions, even when they had kind of yeah. like those big bruising backs, like Eddie Lacy, they still kind of what you should do when you have Aaron Rodgers. but yeah. Um, well, but yeah, that, I, that, that's the other thing, right? Uh, for Aaron Rodgers and for the Packers, uh, Rodgers, they they very infrequently call running plays, uh, especially pre Lafleur. Most of their plays were passing plays with run option with run checks for Rodgers based on the pre snap alignment, and he was willing to do those runs, and that's why even when their offensive line has struggled, they've been really good at running the football because Rodgers is only running the ball when it's in advantageous situations. But so I think that that McAdoo approach still can kind of extend into here. But the, the other thing is uh, they ran a tremendous amount of up-tempo in that 2015, 2014 season in New York. Uh, yes, they, were, they, they were running like 60% up-tempo. <laughs> it was crazy because everyone was like, oh, Chip Kelly's revolutionized. But if you watch those Giants teams, you're, you're 100% right. Yeah. So, I mean, like that type of style where – there's confusion and you're able to get explosives where the uh, where the defense just isn't settled and they're getting exhausted and you can kind of rotate through and do do all of your stuff for the uh, for the Panthers. I think there's some real upside there. Now, do I would I bank on all of these things happening? You know, it's, it's yet to be seen. I, I think it's a totally fair criticism to Baker that there were times that he just didn't look tremendously prepared. Um, you know, he could hit the quick game and he could do those things, but there are certain situations where you're like, man, just, just throw it. That's your read. You know, it just throw the ball. Mm -mm. And you could see that his eyes just were off a little bit, or he hesitated from what he was seeing. And you could just tell that that's just preparation, right? You know, film study, comfort, all those things. When you see a, when you're doing a smash corner and you see that the corner starts to drift and he comes back towards the line of scrimmage, throw the smash don't don't hesitate and then you know he ends up running the ball or breaking the pocket or stuff like that so i think depending on how long it takes for him to pick up the playbook is really going to determine what they do but mcadoo was a really good coach from a quarterback perspective right like that was his thing working with with aaron Rodgers, with eli um simplifying the reads getting the ball out of their hands quick and doing a lot of really positive things in that regard and that's right up Baker's alley. So I don't, you know, if they're, if they're doing a good job of pulling him along, I see no reason to think that he won't be back in that, that mid tier category with the potential for top 10 upside in any season. For sure. Yeah. I do think McAdoo, he gets a little bit of, again, like I said earlier, the bad rep because of uh, what he went through as a head coach, yeah. just, and again, that's, I'm not going to you know, defend or justify some of the decisions he made when he was a head coach. But again, a lot of coaches in that situation, they just become power hungry and they do crazy stuff. But yeah, um, you know, when he was under Tom Coughlin and he replaced Kevin Gilbright, who at that stage of his career was kind of getting outdated. Um, mm -hmm. Eli did kind of have a little bit of a rejuvenation for like three years under McAdoo. And yep. um, so Let's quickly get into this offensive line because this yep. unit last year was a complete albatross, one of the worst units I've seen. And I've seen some bad <laughs> offensive lines, especially yeah. like early Cam Newton had some uh, really some issues with the yes. offensive lines uh, for this franchise. But, uh, you know, they've kind of consolidated pretty well. I mean, they went out in free agency and signed Bozeman, um, Bradley Bozeman and Austin Corbett. Uh, and those are two solid NFL interior players you know, linemen, they're not, you know, the studs, like the guys like Brandon Scherf or uh, a Tooney, some of those guys you pay top dollar to in free agency, but they're, 
relatively good players and uh, or at least solid players. And then you yeah. have Taylor Moten on the right side, one of the better right tackles in the league. And you've spent a top 10 pick on Equano. Now it's going to be uh, a little bit of a transition for Equano. It's, uh, I don't think anyone expects that to go any different, but um, I, I think the upside for this unit is pretty high, but I do think it, even if they don't hit those like, you know, high benchmarks that, you know, just an average season could propel them to be like a 17 to 18 type offensive line unit. Mm-hmm. I, I agree with you. And I think part of the, the thing with offensive line play in general, right. It's, it's the continuity factor that really matters as much as anything that you could um, that you could have for that unit, because lesser players, as long as they know what they're doing, they can handle those stunts. They can do all of those different things that really get teams in trouble, right? That's how you create massive pressure. It's when you start doing those tight end, those TE stunts and you're really, uh, muddying the the middle and really f- stressing the uh, the football IQ of those players and their athleticism. And I think from an athletics athleticism perspective, they have the people to, to handle those. From a from a division perspective, you know the the Saints obviously are scary. Uh, the Falcons don't have a tremendously good defensive front, and then the you know the Buccaneers their their edge game can be a little bit better. So I think in those games, I think they have the the bodies to do it. Uh, Corbett took a little bit of a step back last year for the Rams, but he's still, as you said, a solid NFL starter. Uh, I've never been a huge Bozeman fan in pure drop back game. I thought he always fit better in that style of, uh, you know, read option, heavy run, do all of that type of stuff. But I think he's definitely still a quality, a quality enough starter. There, there are a lot worse starters in the league at center. I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. And if that's your weakest spot, you can kind of get away with it as long as the football IQ is there, which it is. Um, Icky, I think he's going to be good. You know, I think from a run game perspective, he's going to be dominant. From a pass game perspective, I thought he was better than what he got credit for. I don't think he was as polished as Evan Neal, but I think he's a really good player already in that department who will have his struggles. But when you're so athletic and you're as strong as he is, I think he can really make up for some of those, those early miscues. Um, but I think the big thing for an offensive line is that if the quarterback knows what to expect with the unit, they'll be fine, right? Mm-hmm. They can mitigate the circumstances. It's when the unknowns start kind of coming through with the injuries, when it comes with the, you know, um, depending on who's handling the line shifts. Right. If it's if it's quarterback, if it's the center who's responsible for shifting every everybody, when you have the information that you know what you're dealing with, it becomes a lot easier. So even if they're not a premier unit, I think a quarterback can definitely survive with it if they know what to expect. And I think you saw that with someone like Derek Carr this past year, right, where that unit was not good at all. One of the bottom five offensive lines in football but he managed the expectations perfectly because he knew I do not have time to hold this football. I have to get it out to my running back. I have to keep the chains moving, hit, hit the quick game, hit these throws. And if I have six or seven man protection, I get that extra second. We can make this work. And I think that's really what it boils down to for this unit. As long as they are consistent with how they play, even if it's consistently average, Mm -hmm. it'll go a long way. Yeah, for sure. And that's all we're really asking for. We're not asking for, you know, an elite unit. Um, But as we close out here, just give me some of your kind of reasonable expectations for Mayfield. I don't want you to put a win-loss record or anything like that into the stratosphere, but just give me some reasonable expectations um, for Mayfield this upcoming year. Okay. Reasonable expectations. Um, with the assumption that he starts week one, which right? he will. Yeah, he, he should. <laughs> um, I would say you'll probably get into a situation where he throws the ball about 550, 550 times, um, probably around 7.2 to 7.4 yards per attempt. Um, very good vertical accuracy. I don't know if that's going to translate into touchdowns, but I would expect to have around maybe 12 interceptions, 25 touchdowns, um, and, and really good accuracy in, in some of those games. 
Um, I expect him to get back to form and I think he'll feel really comfortable play playing fast and loose. That's really what you're going to get. You're going to see some swagger out of him. Um, will it translate to wins? That That's a different discussion. Um, but I think as long as they have him playing free football and letting him just kind of do his thing, I think they'll be in a, in a much better spot with him. And you'll get, you'll get closer to that 2020 Baker um, than, than last year for sure. Well, uh, that's what most fans are hoping for after the past few years of just really abysmal QB play. So we'll take it. Um, Andre, as we do sign off on here, do you want to plug anything that you're working on or what you have kind of planned out for the upcoming year? Uh, nothing yet that I can really go into. I've been doing some stuff behind the scenes on a few different things, but, um, I do have a, a YouTube channel that I am going to be working on more and more, uh, doing front office tutorials on things like, uh, salary cap contracts, the intricacies of things of that nature, compensatory picks. So that is youtube.com backslash moonlight Swami M O O and L-I-G-H-T-S-W-A-M-I. Yeah, and please do follow him. Andre does a really good job of engaging with uh, fans on Twitter. Uh, he'll always respond to you if you do have questions or comments. And he you know, does just a really, really tremendous amount of work on Twitter too, just posting clips during the year. So um, yeah, make sure you check him out. Andre, thanks again for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.